Take a Bible for the last time this summer. Find the book of 1 John, chapter 5. We're going to look at the last couple of verses, verse 18 to 21. It's week 16 of 16 in our walk through the book of 1 John. One of the things I want to do this morning is to just point out at the beginning a few things, not only in our passage, but things that we've talked about all summer long. Just some of those themes that have been on repeat as we've worked our way through 1 John. One of those is the fact that John uses terms of endearment to refer to his readers or his audience in this short letter. The last verse of 1 John actually contains John's final term of endearment, and it's a reminder that John, in writing these things, is writing as a pastor who cares about his people. Here's the deal. When you read 1 John, there are some things that are hard to hear, and there are some things that are very confrontational in nature. John tends to draw lines in the sand, and he says you're either on this side or you're on that side. Uh, he says things very boldly. He's very black and white. Hard things, confrontational things, these terms of endearment remind us that they're not spoken with a harsh, condescending tone. John is not just saying hard things to be hard on us. He's saying hard things because he loves us. And he's not speaking with this sort of tone of disappointment, but he's wanting to encourage and strengthen God's people. And so we see that this morning. Verse 21, he talks about little children. Another theme that we've seen all summer long as we've gone through 1 John is a theme of regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration. When John talks about being born again, he talks about the new birth, or the theological term would be regeneration. Several times we've gone back to the Gospel of John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 3, where John and then Jesus explain regeneration. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is not something you do. It's not something your pastor does. It doesn't happen at the moment of baptism. It doesn't happen when you take the Lord's Supper. It is something that the Holy Spirit does to a sinner when they're converted. Right? The parallel is birth. When you were physically born, you contributed precious little. When you are spiritually born, you contribute precious little. The Holy Spirit is the one active in regeneration. Our response is repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's conversion. That's our responsibility. When you turn from sin and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. When that happens, a sinner is born again and they repent and they believe, they receive eternal life. John knows that, but John wants you to know that. He's not satisfied with you having eternal life. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. That's the dominant theme of the entire book. We've talked about this every single week. John wrote this letter so that believers could have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. And we pulled that from 1 John 5.13. John says, I write these things to you who believe. They've been born of God. They've turned from their sin. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to have assurance 
in certainty about the eternal life that's ours in Jesus. That brings us to the big idea of this passage. It's very simple. Believers can know the truth about Jesus. Believers can know the truth about Jesus. You pull that big idea out of our passage when you pay attention to the words that are repeated. Three times in the verses we're about to read, John says, we know something. Look at verse 18. He says, we know. Look at verse 19. We know. Look at verse 20. We know. Three times. We know, we know, we know. Then look at verse 20. He uses the word true. We know him who is true. We are in him who is true. And Jesus Christ is the true God in eternal life. This repetition shows you the big idea. Believers can know the truth about Jesus. So take your copy of the scriptures. Let's read these verses and then let's pray and ask God to give us eyes to see the truth. 1 John 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord, we come to the end of this book, and we are thankful for the words that John wrote. John the pastor, John the theologian, Lord, we thank you for his heart, for your people, that he would say difficult things, but that he would say it with a kind, shepherding tone in his voice. Lord, we're thankful that when we read this book, we not only hear John speaking to us, but we hear you speaking to us. Lord, we hear your spirit who inspired these words speaking to our hearts. Lord, this morning we ask that you would give us Wisdom, give us eyes to see the truth. Give us hearts that are eager to receive it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1992, there was a movie filmed in Plainview, Texas. The movie was called Leap of Faith. Any of you seen this movie? It's kind of an old movie. It might predate a few of you. It's a Steve Martin movie. I think Steve Martin's funny. He's also a great banjo player, if you didn't know that. Most of what he posts on Twitter these days is him in the woods playing bluegrass banjo music, and he's amazing, so you might want to check that out. But 1992, he films a movie called Leap of Faith, and the the movie Leap of Faith is about uh, Steve Martin playing a man named Jonas Nightingale. Jonas Nightingale is a faith healer. In parentheses, you understand he's a con man. He's traveling across the country. He breaks down in the fictional town of Rustwater, Kansas, And his initial thought is, we're just going to get the bus fixed and we're going to get out of here as soon as we can. But then he sees an opportunity. Here's the opportunity. Nightingale doesn't believe what he's preaching about Jesus. He doesn't believe any of it. 
he's a con man. And as the story develops, you realize he's 100% con man, 0% faith healer, which maybe you just say there's an equal sign between those things anyways. The opportunity he sees is we could put on a show here in Rustwater, and if the show's good enough, we might be able to milk these people out of some of their money. And so that's what he does. It's a very cynical look at Christian preaching and Christian ministry. At the end of the movie, I won't spoil it for you. You've only had like 20, 30 years to see it, so I won't spoil it for you. There's a little bit of a happy turn at the end. Something sort of encouraging happens. But at the end, you're left with this picture of Christianity as something that's not true, but it kind of works. No one believes it in the end. It's all just sort of a bunch of gobbledygook. He's still a huckster. He's still a con man. But you're left with this idea that maybe for some people, this whole Jesus thing just sort of works. That's a very American idea. That's pragmatism. We don't really care the rightness, the wrongness, the truthfulness, the lie in it. We just want something as Americans that works. Does it work? Does it give results? Does it produce results? That might be how the producers of this movie view Christianity. You understand that is not how the Apostle John viewed it. John's not writing to people saying, hey, I've got something that works. You ought to try it out. Sometimes Christianity is presented in those terms. Well, just try it. What do you have to lose? That's not how John's presenting the Christian faith. John's presenting the Christian faith as something that is true. It is true, true, true. And it's something that you can know. And we come to the end of 1 John. The whole book is about certainty, certainty about our relationship with Jesus, certainty about eternal life. And now John wants to add to that certainty. He wants us to know certain things about Jesus here at the end of this letter. So the question is this, what truth can believers know about Jesus? I want you to see three truths as we put a bow on 1 John. Here's the first truth. We know that believers do not continue in habitual, unrepentant sin. That's one of the things that we know. And that relates to Jesus. When Jesus begins a work in your life, you're born again, you turn from sin, you believe in Jesus, Jesus starts that work in your life, we know that a person who experiences new birth will not continue in habitual, unrepentant sin. This is out of verse 18. Verse 18 has two parts, part A and part B. I'm reading out of the ESV. I like how the translators of the ESV handle the first part of verse 18. I'm not crazy about how they handle the back part. And I just want to point out these two parts of the verse and explain to you what John is saying. Look at 1 John 5.18a. John says, We know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. I like that they translated it, keep on sinning. It's not, John's message is not, we know that believers never sin. Boy, if that's the truth, we're all in trouble. That's not what John's saying. He is not saying if you're a Christian, you stop sinning completely and entirely. We know that's not what John's saying because we read 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 that say this, 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you say that you're not a sinner, in the past, the present, and in the future, you are lying to yourself. You're fooling yourself and the truth is not in you. Here's what Christians do. They confess their sins and they believe that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian is not a person who doesn't sin anymore. Christian is a person who acknowledges their sin, sees it for what it is, confesses it to God, and receives forgiveness. If you wanted to put this in theological language, I like visuals. Here's what John is really saying to us. Regeneration always leads to sanctification. When you're born again, the inevitable result is that over time you will grow more and more and more like Jesus. It doesn't mean you're going to stop sinning completely, but it means you're going to grow in Christ-likeness. You're going to grow in holiness. That's sanctification. It doesn't happen in a moment. It doesn't happen when you're baptized instantly. It doesn't happen instantly when you take the Lord's Supper. It's not a magical thing. It's something you grow in over time. John would certainly say that a person who's been born again turns from sin, believes in Jesus, will not continue in habitual, unrepentant sin. The entire orientation of their life has changed. They were dead, now they're alive. That's the first part of verse 18. Notice what he says in the back part of verse 18. He who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. The question in the ESV is, who's doing the protecting? Am I supposed to protect myself from the evil one? Is God protecting me from the evil one? You could even back it up further to the passage Corey preached last week, and you could say, is the believer praying for me, the one doing the protecting? Who's protecting? And if you read out of a version of the Bible, not the ESV, you have a little help at the end of verse 18. In the ESV, the translators never capitalize pronouns for God. That's just their literary approach to the Scriptures. But some English translations of this verse have capital H, lowercase e, reminding you that the one doing the protecting isn't you, and it's not the person sitting next to you in the pew. It's Jesus Christ himself. He's the one that protects you from the evil one. And that makes sense with what we've read and what we know about Jesus in the New Testament. Look at John 10. Jesus, he just said, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The good shepherd hangs on to his people. The good shepherd protects his people. The good shepherd protects God's people from the evil one. First thing John says is, we know that believers will not continue in habitual unrepentant sin. Jesus is protecting them, and they've been born again and experienced such a radical change in regeneration that the total overarching orientation of their life is now moving in a different direction. Here's the second thing we can know. We can know that believers are part of God's family, not part of the world. You've been born again. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are part of God's family. You are not part of the world. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world 
lies in the power of the evil one. Do you see the contrast? There are people who are from God, and then there's the world lying in the power of the evil one. Interesting news recently out of the nation of Turkey. There's a famous building in Turkey known as the Hagia Sophia, literally the Church of Holy Wisdom. The church was built an awful long time ago. Roman emperors built it. They built it to be a Christian cathedral. When they built this building in Constantinople, it was the largest indoor space in the entire world, and it held on to that designation for centuries. It's a, a massive, massive building, originally built as a cathedral, a Christian place of worship. When the Muslims conquered the city of Constantinople, they renamed the city Istanbul, and they went to this Christian cathedral, and they ripped out all the Christian art. Some of it they plastered over, and they converted this cathedral into a mosque. And for centuries, Muslim prayers were practiced on Fridays in this mosque. In the early 1900s, the modern-day nation of Turkey was founded. It was originally founded as a secular nation, and the first president of Turkey said, we're a secular state. We're not going to support Muslim worship. We're not going to support Christian worship. And he took this building, the Hagia Sophia, and he said, it's not going to be a mosque. It's not going to be a cathedral. We're going to make it a museum. So they took down some of the drapes and they took off some of the whitewash and you could go to the museum and you could see some of the Christian art in this building. Right next to it, you could see some of the Islamic, some of the Muslim art also in this building. And it was just a museum. Anybody could go in. There was no worship taking place in the building. It was just a museum. Recently, like in the last few weeks, the president of Turkey today, who is a devout Muslim, said, this building will no longer be a a museum. We're going to reconvert it into a mosque. We're going to cover up the Christian art. We're going to whitewash what we don't like, and it's going to be an Islamic mosque, a Muslim mosque. For us, that's just a building, and it's been one thing, and it's been another, and it probably won't be the last thing that it's been. In the Islamic mindset, this is really important. In the classical Islamic mindset, the entire world can be divided into two types of geography, two types of real estate. There's the Dar al-Islam, the territory of peace. That's where Muslim people rule and have control. The the Sharia law is recognized and practiced. And then there's the Dar al-Hab, the territory of war. As a museum... They looked at this building, the Hagia Sophia, and they said, that is territory of war. But as a mosque, they say, that territory has been reclaimed as ours. And the concern is geography. The concern is real estate. The concern is a building. And it's a victory to have it brought back in to the territory of peace. Look, as Americans, we hear this territory of peace, territory of war, and we think, that's kind of crazy. That's kind of weird. I would just suggest to you as Christians, we believe something that's not all that different. Our concern isn't geography, real estate, buildings. Our concern is that there are two kingdoms vying for the hearts of every man, woman, boy, girl on the earth. We don't divide the world into this kind of geography, but we do understand that there's the world. It's not the earth or the globe, 
the world in John's mindset, in the New Testament mindset, is the fallen mass of humanity that stands in defiance to God and rejects, pushes back violently against his rule in our lives. There's the world and there's the kingdom of God. Every person is part of one of those two kingdoms. John says right here that for now, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's a a ruler, there's a head of this worldly kingdom, Satan himself. And left to yourself and left to myself, we're all born into that kingdom. But when you're born again, God brings you out of that kingdom and he places you into his kingdom. He quite literally adopts you into his family. John wants you to know this. He wants you to understand it. Here in the closing words of this letter, he thinks it's important for you to understand, yes, you live in the world right now, but you are not of the world. You are of God. You are from God. You have been born of God. You are no longer part of that kingdom, and the evil one has no ultimate authority or power over your life. You've been brought into God's family. Here's the third truth, last truth. We know that believers have the truth because they have a relationship with Jesus. We have the truth because we have a relationship with Jesus. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. He's given us understanding, underline that word, understanding so that we may know, underline that word, we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. You listen to the mainstream media today, you'll hear Christians described in very unflattering terms. We've talked about this not all that long ago. Christians are often portrayed as sort of uneducated, unthinking, uninformed, unsophisticated people. We don't have the reputation as being intellectuals in the current cultural climate. Partly that's just living in the world and not being of the world. Partly that's our own fault. It's partly our fault because as Christian people for far too long, we have relied on feeling and emotion over things that we know. And I'm not talking about necessarily you or this church or any one church. I'm just talking about Christians in the United States. The emphasis predominantly over the last 50 years especially has been on what do you feel What is your emotion? What are you experiencing? Rather than on what do you know and what do you understand? You say, well, is it really that big of a deal? I think it is that big of a deal. And churches, more and more and more, are actively promoting what they do on Sunday mornings, not as a time of worship, but as an experience. They have literally taken a page from the world of marketing. You understand that marketers today, you can't get away from them, they are not selling you products. There's not a marketing company in the United States that wants to sell you a product. They all want to sell you an experience. They are not trying to sell you hot dogs. They're selling you an experience in the backyard with the grill and your friends and the kids and everyone's nice. And then when you get out there with the hot dogs and the grill in the backyard, you're like, it's 108 degrees out here and my kids are screaming and this is not what they sold me. 
Might be all be Franks, but this is not what I signed up for. They're not trying to sell you washing machines. They're not trying to sell you plane tickets. They're not trying to sell you any product. They're selling you an experience. What a tragedy that many churches have jumped on board, and what they're saying is, come, join us. We're going to have an experience of something. An experience is great for about 10 minutes, and then you get hungry and you go eat lunch and it's done. That's it. An encounter with the truth changes you from the inside out, not just for 10 minutes, but for all eternity. John does not want the church to just chase an experience, one spiritual experience after another. John says here at the end of this book, God, the Son of God has come, and he's given us understanding, something that we know, something that is true True, true. Not just something that works, not just something that produces an emotion, but something that is true. We may know him who is true. We can be in him who is true. He, that's Jesus, is the true God. One of the clearest statements to the deity of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. He is the true God and eternal life. When I say to you, I want you to have an encounter with the truth rather than a spiritual experience, I don't mean that I want you to come in this room and be impressed with my intellect or Corey's intellect or Hunter's intellect or anybody's intellect. What I'm saying is I want you to know the one who is true. I want you to know Jesus. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling or an experience. It's an understanding that takes deep root in your mind and deep root in your heart. Driving along with John, it's like you're on 42nd Street. You don't want to get run over, so you're driving 65. And then it's like all of a sudden, John just slams on the brakes as hard as he can. At the end of verse 20, it's like the brakes hit. This is what he says in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Like uh, the most abrupt ending. He's just flowing along. He's moving in these circles from the beginning all the way through chapter 5. It's not a long book, so you think, man, he's really hitting his stride here. Then all of a sudden he slams the brakes, and he says, oh, by the way, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Kind of reminds me, as I thought about it this week, kind of reminds me of the stereotypical difference between men and women. Now, I'm not trying to pigeonhole any of you. Some of you may not fit nicely and neatly in these categories. I just want you to think with me about how men typically use words and how women typically use words. Men, for the most part, use words for information. We say words, we open our mouth, we utter syllables, we string sentences together to communicate information. And when the information has been communicated, we're done. We resort to grunting. Mm. Yeah. Women, on the other hand, typically, stereotype, use words for relationship. It's not really about information. It's just about relationship. And the more words, the better the relationship. And the better the relationship, the more words. 
and you get in this catch-22, this cycle of just words and relationship and words and relationship, and men get in that cycle, and we think, let me off. Let me out of here. That's enough words. And women, they, most women, they can just keep going. They just go round and round and round. And men are thinking, I get it. I got it. How many ways do you need to say goodbye on the phone before we hang up? It's, just, it's bye, hang up. Women take 10 minutes to say goodbye on the phone. Love you, okay, talk to you later, goodbye, okay, thanks for calling, all right, I'll see you later, bye. It just goes on and on. John, he gets to verse 20, and it's like John says, well, that's what I wanted to say. Slam the brakes, I'm done communicating the information, I got to end with something, so he just says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Seems very random, seems like a tag on at the end of this book that has nothing else to do with what's gone before it, It's not random. Let me show you two connections as we wrap up. Historically, there's a connection. Historically, John's warning about idols applies to idols of the hand, as would have been common in Ephesus. Church tradition tells us that John pastored for many years in the city of Ephesus. In the city of Ephesus, there was located one of the wonders of the ancient world. Today, it's reduced to a single column standing in a field, but that's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like in John's day, the Temple of Artemis. This is this massive, magnificent structure where people from all over Asia Minor would come on a pilgrimage, and they would come to buy idols. You remember from the book of Acts that as Paul preached in this city, so many people were converted that the people who worked at this temple selling idols had no business. No one was buying idols anymore and they ran Paul out of town because the idol industry was all dried up. John pastored in that town, literally down the street from this building where people came from all around to buy statues. John the pastor would have talked about this regularly. Don't worship idols. Don't go to the temple. Don't buy the statue. There's a historical connection. There's also a textual connection. Textually, John's warning applies to idols of the mind like those promoted by false teachers. You understand if you've read through 1 John that there were people floating around saying things like this. Jesus is not the Christ. People were saying that, and John confronts it in this letter. There was people saying, Jesus did not really come in the flesh, meaning the ancient of days did not actually walk among us. You might have thought that happened, but that's not what happened. He did not come in the flesh. John confronts that idea. There was even people we saw a few weeks ago floating around John's church saying things like, look, we're all for Jesus, but that stuff about the cross is really a bridge too far. It's bloody, it's gory, we don't like it. It paints an unflattering picture of us. We do not believe Jesus actually died on the cross. We believe there was a guy named Jesus, we just don't believe he actually died on the cross. There's all this false teaching floating around. And John understands, you can walk down the street and you can buy a statue of Artemis and it can be an idol. Or you can shape an idol in your mind, you can name it Jesus, 
And it can be every bit as idolatrous as that statue you buy down the street. And what John is saying here at the end of this book, it's not just a random add-on to shut it down. What he's saying is, you don't have to settle for the counterfeit. You don't have to settle for the statue that you buy down the street for 10 bucks. And you don't have to settle for the phony version of Jesus being talked about by these false teachers. You can know the truth. Believers can know the truth. And when you've been born again and you've turned from your sin and you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know that God will continue the work he started in your life so that the overarching pattern of your life will not be habitual, unrepentant sin. You can know that. And you can know that even though you live in the midst of this world, you are not of this world. And you can know Jesus. Not just know about him, Not just have abstract knowledge about him, but you can know Jesus. And in knowing him, you can have eternal life. That's 1 John. Let's pray together.